Chapter One of Sergeant York and His People. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Brett Downey. Sergeant York and His People by Sam K. Cowan. A Fight in the Forest of the Argonne. Just to the north of Chatel Chaury, in the Argonne Forest in France, is a hill which is known to the American soldiers as Hill Number 223. Fronting its high wooded knoll, on the way to Germany, are three more hills. The one in the center is rugged. Those to the right and left are more sloping, and the one to the left, which the people of France have named York's Hill, turns a shoulder toward Hill Number 223. The valley which they form is only from two to three hundred yards wide. Early in the morning of the 8th of October, 1918, as a floating gray mist relaxed its last hold on the tops of the trees on the side of those hills, the All-America Division, the 82nd, poured over the crest of number 223. Prussian guards were on the ridgetops across the valley, and behind the Germans ran the Decovia Railroad the artery for supplies to a salient still further to the north which the germans were striving desperately to hold the second phase of the battle of the meuse argonne was on as the fog rose the americans jumped off down the wooded slope and the germans opened fire from three directions with artillery they pounded the hillside machine guns savagely sprayed the trees under which the americans were moving at one point where the hill makes a steep descent the American line seemed to fade away as it attempted to pass. This slope, it was found, was being swept by machine guns on the crest of the hill to the left, which faced down the valley. The Germans were hastily planting other machine guns there. The Americans showered that hilltop with bullets, but the Germans were entrenched. The sun had now melted the mist, and the sky was cloudless. From the pits, the Germans could see the Americans working their way through the timber. To find a place from which the Bosch could be knocked away from those death-dealing machine-guns and to stop the digging of foxholes for new nests, a non-commissioned officer and sixteen men went out from the American line. All of them were expert rifle-shots who came from the support platoon of the assault troops on the left. Using the forest's undergrowth to shield them, they passed unharmed through the bullet-swept belt which the Germans were throwing around Hill Number 223 and reached the valley. Above them was a canopy of lead, to the north they heard the heavy cannonading of that part of the battle. When they passed into the valley they found they were within the range of another battalion of German machine-guns. The Germans on the hill at the far end of the valley were lashing the base of number 223. For their own protection against the bullets that came with the whip of a wasp through the treetops, the detachment went boldly up the enemy's hill before them. On the hillside they came to an old trench, which had been used in an earlier battle of the war. They dropped into it. Moving cautiously, stopping to get their bearings from the sounds of the guns above them, they walked the trench in Indian file. It led to the left, around the shoulder of the hill, and into the deep dip of a valley in the rear. Germans were on the hilltop across that valley, but the daring of the Americans protected them. The Germans were guarding the valleys and passes, and they were not looking for the enemy in the shadow of the barrels of German guns. As the trench now led down the hill, carrying the Americans away from the gunners they sought, the detachment came out of it and took skirmish formation in the dense and tangled bushes. They had gone but a short distance when they stepped upon a forest path. Just below them were two Germans, with red cross bands upon their arms. 
at the sight of the americans the germans dropped their stretcher and turned and fled around a curve the sound of the shots fired after them was lost in the clatter of the machine guns above one of the germans fell but regained his feet and both disappeared in the shrubs to the right it was kill or capture those germans to prevent exposure of the position of the invaders and the americans went after them they turned off the path where they saw the stretcher bearers leave it darted through the underbrush dodged trees and stumps and brushes jumping through the shrubs and reeds on the bank of a small stream the americans in the lead landed in a group of about twenty of the enemy the germans sprang to their feet in surprise they were behind their own line of battle officers were holding a conference with a major private soldiers in groups were chatting and eating they were before a little shack that was the german major headquarters and from it stretched telephone wires the germans were not set for a fight out from the brushwood and off the bank across the stream one after another came the americans it bewildered the germans they did not know the number of the enemy that had come upon them as each of the buddies landed he sensed the situation and prepared for an attack from any angle some of them fired at german soldiers whom they saw reaching for their guns all threw up their hands with the cry of kamerad when the americans opened fire about their prisoners the americans formed a semicircle as they forced them to disarm at the left end of this crescent was alvin york a young six-foot mountaineer who had come to the war from the knobs of tennessee he knew nothing of military tactics beyond the simple evolutions of the drill only a few days before he had seen the first flash of a hostile gun but a rifle was as familiar to his hands as one of the fingers upon them his body was ridged and laced with muscles that had grown to seasoned sinews from swinging a sledge in a blacksmith's shop he had never seen the man or crowd of men of whom he was afraid he had hunted in the mountains while forked lightning flashed around him he had heard the thunder crash in mountain coves as loud as the burst of any german shell he was of that type into which whose brain and heart the qualm of fear never comes the americans were on the down step of the hill with their prisoners on higher ground the major's headquarters had been hidden away in a thicket of young undergrowth and the americans could see but a short distance ahead as the semicircle formed with alvin york on the left end he stepped beyond the edge of the thicket and what he saw up the hill surprised him just forty yards away was the crest and along it was a row of machine-guns a battalion of them the german gunners had heard the shots fired by the americans in front of the major's shack or they had been warned by the fleeing stretcher-bearers that the enemy was behind them they were jerking at their guns rapidly turning them around for the nests had been masked and the muzzles of the guns pointed down into the valley at the foot of hill number two two three to sweep it when the eighty-second division came into the open some of the germans in the gun pits using rifles shot at york the bullets burned his face as they passed he cried a warning to his comrades which evidently was not heard for when he began to shoot up the hill they called to him to stop as the germans had surrendered they saw only the prisoners before them there was no time for parley york's second cry look out could carry no explanation of the danger to those whose view was blinded by the thicket the germans had their guns turned hell and death were being belched down the hillside upon the americans at the opening rattle of these guns the german prisoners as if through a prearranged signal fell flat to the ground and the streams of lead passed over them some of the americans prevented by the thicket from seeing that an attack was to be made upon them hearing the guns instinctively followed the lead of the germans but the onslaught came with such suddenness that those in the line of fire had no chance the first sweep of the guns killed six and wounded three of the americans 
death leaped through the bushes and claimed Corporal Murray Savage, Privates Marion Dimwowski, Ralph Wheeler, Fred Waring, William Wine, and Carl Swanson. Crumpled to the ground, wounded, were Sergeant Bernard Early, who had been in command, Corporal William B. Cutting, and Private Mario Musey. York, to escape the guns he saw sweeping towards him, had dived to the ground between two shrubs. The fire of other machine guns was added to those already in action, and streams of lead continued to pour through the thicket. But the toll of the dead and wounded of the Americans had been taken. The Germans kept their line of fire about waist-high so they would not kill their own men, some of whom they could see groveling on the ground. York had seen the murder of his pals in the first onset. He had heard someone say, "'Let's get out of here. We are in the German line.' Then all had been silence on the American side. German prisoners lay on the ground before him, in view of the gunners on the hilltop. York edged around till he had a clear view of the gun pits above him. The stalks of weeds and undergrowth were about him. There came a lull in the machine-gun fire. Several Germans arose as though to come out of their pits and down the hill to see the battle's result. But on the American side the battle was just begun. York, from the brushes at the end of the thicket, let fly. One of the Germans sprang upward, waved his arms above him as he began his flight into eternity. The others dropped back into their holes, and there was another clatter of machine-guns, and again the bullets slashed across the thicket. But there was silence on the American side. York waited. More cautiously, German heads began to rise above their pits. York moved his rifle deliberately along the line, knocking back those heads that were the more venturesome. The American rifle shoots five times, and a clip was gone before the Germans realized that the fire upon them was coming from one point. They centered upon that point. Around York the ground was torn up. Mud from the plowing bullets besmirched him. The brush was moved away above and on either side of him, and leaves and twigs were falling over him. But they could only shoot at him. They were given no chance to take deliberate aim. As they turned the clumsy barrel of a machine-gun down at the fire-sparking point on the hillside, a German would raise his head above his pit to sight it. Instantly backward along that machine-gun barrel would come an American bullet, crashing into the head of the Bosch who manned the gun. Prisoners on the ground squirmed under the fire that was passing over them. Their bodies were in a tortuous motion, but York held them there. It made the gunners keep their fire high. Every shot York made was carefully placed. As a hunter stops in the forest and gazes straight ahead, his mind, receptive to the slightest movement of a squirrel or the rustle of leaves in any of the trees before him, so this Tennessee mountaineer faced and fought that line of blazing machine-guns on the ridge of the hill before him. His mind was sensitive to the point in the line that at that instant threatened a real danger, and instinctively he turned towards it. Down the row of prisoners on the ground he saw the German major with a pistol in his hand, and he made the officer throw the gun to him. Later its magazine was found to have been emptied. He noted that after he shot at the gun pit, there was a break in the line of flame at that point, and an interval would pass before that gun would again be manned and become a source of danger to him. He also realized that where there was a sudden break of ten or fifteen feet in the line of flame, and the trunk of a tree rose within that space, that soon a German gun and helmet would be peeking around the tree's trunk. A rifleman would try for him where the machine guns failed. In the mountains of Tennessee, Alvin York had won fame as one of the best shots with both rifle and revolver that those mountains had ever held, and his imperturbability was as noted as the keenness of his sight. In the mountain shooting matches at a range of forty yards, just the distance the row of German guns were from him, 
he would put ten rifle bullets into a space no larger than a man's thumbnail. Since a small boy he had been shooting with a rifle at the bobbing heads of turkeys that had been tethered behind a log, so that only their heads would show. German heads and German helmets loomed large before him. A battalion of machine guns is a military unit organized to give battle to a regiment of infantry. Yet, one man, a representative of America on that hillside on that October morning, broke the morale of a battalion of machine gunners made up from members of Germany's famous Prussian guards. Down in the brush below the Prussians was a human machine gun they could not hit, and the penalty was death to try to locate him. As York fought, there was prayer upon his lips. He was an elder in a little church back in the Valley of the Three Forks of the Wolf, in the mountains of Tennessee. He prayed to God to spare him and to have mercy on those whom he was compelled to kill. When York shot, and a German soldier fell backward or pitched forward and remained motionless, York would call to them, "'Well, come on down!' It was an earnest command in which there was no spirit of exultation or braggadocio. He was praying for their surrender, so that he might stop killing them. His command, "'Come down!' at times, above the firing, was heard in the German pits. They realized they were fighting one man, and they could not understand the strange demand." When the fight began, York was lying on the ground, but as the entire line of German guns came into the fight, he raised himself to a sitting position so that his gun would have the sweep of all of them. When the Germans found they could not get him with bullets, they tried other tactics. Off to his left, seven Germans, led by a lieutenant, crept through the bushes. When about twenty yards away, they broke for him with lowered bayonets. The clip of York's rifle was nearly empty. He dropped it and took his automatic pistol. So calmly was he master of himself, and so complete his vision of the situation, that he selected as his first mark among the oncoming Germans the one farthest away. He knew he would not miss the form of a man at that distance. He wanted the rear men to fall first, so the others would keep coming at him, and not stop in panic when they saw their companions falling, and fire a volley at him. He felt that in such a volley his only danger lay. They kept coming, and fell as he shot. The foremost man, and the last to topple, did not get ten yards from where he started. Their bodies formed a line down the hillside. York resumed the battle with the machine guns. The German fire had eased up while the bayonet charge was on. The gunners paused to watch the grim struggle below them. The Major, from among the prisoners, crawled to York with an offer to order the surrender of the machine gunners. "'Do it,' was his laconic acceptance but his vigilance did not lessen. To the right a German had crawled nearby. He arose and hurled a hand grenade. It missed its objective and wounded one of the prisoners. The American rifle swung quickly and the grenade-thrower pitched forward with the grunt of a man struck heavily in the stomach pit. The German major blew his whistle. Out of their gun pits the Germans came, around from behind trees, up from the brush on either side. They were unbuckling cartridge belts and throwing them and their sidearms away. York did not move from his position in the brush. About halfway down the hill as they came to him, he halted them, and he watched the gun pits for movement of anyone left skulking there. His eye went cautiously over the new prisoners to see that all sidearms had been thrown away. The surrender was genuine. There were about ninety Germans before him with their hands in the air. This gave him over a hundred prisoners. He arose and called to his comrades, and several answered him. Some of the responses came from wounded men. All of the Americans had been on York's right throughout the fight. The thicket had prevented them from taking any effective part. 
they were forced to protect themselves from the whining bullets that came through the brush from unseen guns. They had constantly guarded the prisoners and shielded York from treachery. Seven Americans, Percy Beardley, John Konotsky, Thomas G. Johnson, Fyodor Sack, Michael A. Sechina, Patrick Donahue, and George W. Wills, came to him. Sergeant Early, Corporal Cutting, and Private Musy, though wounded, were still alive. He lined the prisoners up by twos. His own wounded he put at the rear of the column, and forced the Germans to carry those who could not walk. The other Americans he stationed along the column to hold the prisoners in line. Sergeant Early, shot through the body, was too severely wounded to continue in command. York was a corporal, but there was no question of rank, for all turned to him for instructions. The Germans could not take their eyes off of him, and instantly complied with all his orders, given through the Major, who spoke English. Stray bullets kept plugging through the branches of the trees around them. For the first time the Americans realized they were under fire from the Germans on the hill back of them, whom they had seen when they had come out of the deserted trench. The Germans stationed there could not visualize the strange fight that was taking place behind a line of German machine guns, and they were withholding their fire to protect their own men. They were plugging into the woods with rifles, hoping to draw a return volley and thus establish the Americans' position. To all who doubted the possibility of carrying so many prisoners through the forest, or spoke of reprisal attacks to release them, York's reply was, "'Let's get em out of here.' The German major, looking down the long line of Germans, possibly planning some recoup from the shame and ignominy of the surrender of so many of them, stepped up to York and asked, "'How many men have you got?' The big mountaineer wheeled on him. "'I got a plenty.' And the major seemed convinced that the number of Americans was immaterial as York thrust his automatic into the major's face and stepped him up to the head of the column." Among the captives were three officers. These York placed around him to lead the prisoners, one on either side and the major immediately before him. In York's right hand swung the automatic pistol, with which he had made an impressive demonstration in the fight up the hill. The officers were told that at the first sign of treachery, or for failure of the men behind to obey a command, the penalty would be their lives, and the major was informed that he would be the first to go. With this information, no German skulking on the hill or in the bushes could fire upon York without endangering the officers. Similar protection was given all of the Americans acting as escort. Up the hill York started the column. From the topography of the land he knew there were machine guns over the crest that had had no part in the fight. Straight to these nests he marched them. As the column approached, the Major was forced by York to command the gunners to surrender. Only one shot was fired after the march began. At one of the nests, a German, seeing so many German as prisoners and so few of the enemy to guard them, all of them on the German firing line with machine-gun nests around them, refused to throw down his gun and showed fight. York did not hesitate. The remainder of that man's crew took their place in line, and the Major promised York there would be no more delays in the surrender if he would kill no more of them. As a great serpent, the column wound among the trees on the hilltop, swallowing the crews of German machine-guns. After the ridge had been cleared, four machine-gun nests were found down the hillside. It took all of the woodcraft the young mountaineer knew to get to his own command. They had come back over the hilltop and were on the slope of the valley in which the 82nd Division was fighting. They were now in danger from both German and American guns. York, listening to the firing, knew that the Americans had reached the valley and that some of them had crossed it. Where their line was running he could not determine. He knew if the Americans saw his column of German uniforms they were in danger, captors and captives alike, of being annihilated, 
At any moment the Germans, from the two hilltops down the valley, to check the 82nd Division's advance, might lay a belt of bullets across the course they traveled. Winding around the cleared places and keeping in the thickly timbered section of the hill slope whenever it was possible, Sergeant York worked his way towards the American line. In the dense woods the German major made suggestions of a path to take. As York was undecided which one to choose, the major's suggestion made him go the other one. Frequently the muzzle of York's automatic dimpled the major's back, and he quickened his step, slowed up, or led the column in the direction indicated to him without turning his head and without inquiry as to the motive back of York's commands. Down near the foot of the hill, near the trench they had traveled a short while before, York answered the challenge to, Halt! He stepped out so his uniform could be seen, and called to the Americans challenging him, and about to fire on the Germans, that he was, Bringing in prisoners! The American line opened for him to pass, and a wild cheer went up from the doughboys when they saw the column of prisoners. Some of them called to him to know if he had the whole damned German army. At the foot of the hill, in an old dugout, an American PC had been located, and York turned in his prisoners. The prisoners were officially counted by Lieutenant Joseph A. Woods, Assistant Division Inspector, and there were 132 of them. Three of the number were officers, and one with the rank of Major. When the 82nd Division passed on, officers of York's regiment visited the scene of the fight, and they counted 25 Germans that he had killed, and 35 machine-guns that York had not only silenced, but had unmanned, carrying the men back with him as prisoners. When York was given his receipt for the prisoners, an incident happened that shows the true knightliness of the character of this untrained mountaineer. It was but a little after ten o'clock in the morning. The Americans had a hard day's fighting ahead of them. Somewhere out in the forest, York's own company, Company G, and his own regiment, the 328th Infantry, were fighting. He made an inquiry, but no one could direct him to them. He turned to the nearest American officer, saluted, and reported, Ready for duty. What he had done was to him but a part of the work to be done that day. But York was assigned to the command of his prisoners to carry them back to a detention camp. The officers were held by the P.C. for an examination and grilling on the plans of the enemy. Whenever they could, the private soldiers among the prisoners gathered close to York, now looking to him for their personal safety. On the way to the detention camp, the column was shelled by German guns from one of the hilltops. York maneuvered them and put them in double quick time until they were out of range. Late in the afternoon, back of the three hills that face Hill Number 223, the All-America Division cut the Decovi Railroad that supplied a salient to the north that the Germans were striving desperately to hold. As they swept on to their objective, they found the hill to the left of the valley that turns a shoulder towards Number 223, which the people of France have named York's Hill, cleared of Germans, and, on its crest, silent and unmanned machine-guns. Americans returned and buried on the hillside, beside a thicket, near a shack that had been the German officers' headquarters, six American soldiers. They placed wooden crosses to mark the graves, and on the top of the crosses swung the helmets the soldiers had worn. Out of the forest came the story of what York had done. The men in the trenches along the entire front were told of it. Not only in the United States, but in Great Britain, France, and Italy, it electrified the public. From the meager details the press was able to carry, for the entire Entente firing line was ablaze and a surrender was being forced upon Germany, and York's division was out in the Argonne still fighting its way ahead, the people could but wonder how one man was able to silence a battalion of machine-guns and bring in so many prisoners. Major General George B. Duncan, commander of the 82nd Division, and officers of York's regiment knew that history had been made upon that hillside. 
by personal visits of the regiment's officers to the scene, by measurements, by official count of the silent guns and the silent dead, by affidavits from those who were with York, the record of his achievement was verified. Major General C. P. Summerall, before the officers of York's regiment, said to him, "'Your division commander has reported to me your exceedingly gallant conduct during the operations of your division in the Meuse-Argonne battle. I desire to express to you my pleasure and commendation for the courage, skill, and gallantry which you displayed on that occasion. It is an honor to command such soldiers as you. Your conduct reflects great credit not only upon the American army, but upon the American people.' Your deeds will be recorded in the history of this great war, and they will live as an inspiration not only to your comrades, but to the generations that will come after us. General John J. Pershing, in pinning the Congressional Medal of Honor upon him, the highest award for valor the United States government bestows, called York the greatest civilian soldier of the war. Marshal Falk, bestowing the Croix de Guerre with palm upon him, said his feat was the World War's most remarkable individual achievement. A deed that is done through the natural use of a great talent seems to the doer of the deed the natural thing to have done. A sincere response to appreciation and praise, made by those endowed with real ability, usually comes cloaked with a genuine modesty. At his home in the Valley of the Three Forks of the Wolf, after the war was over, I asked Alvin York how he came to be Sergeant York. Well, he said as he looked earnestly at me, you know we were in the Argonne Forest twenty-eight days, and had some mighty hard fighting there. A lot of our boys were killed off. Every company has to have so many sergeants. They needed a sergeant, and they just took me. In the summer of 1917, when Alvin York was called to war, he was working on the farm for $25 a month and his midday meal, walking to and from his work. He was helping to support his widowed mother with her family of eleven. When he returned to this country to be mustered out of service, he had traveled among the soldiers of France, the guest of the American Expeditionary Force, so the men in the lines could see the man who single-handed had captured a battalion of machine guns, and he bore the emblems of the highest military honors conferred for valor by the governments composing the Allies. At New York he was taken from troopship when it reached the harbor, and the spontaneous welcome given him there and at Washington was not surpassed by the prearranged demonstrations for the nation's distinguished foreign visitors. The streets of those cities were lined with people to await his coming, and police patrols made way for him. The flaming red of his hair, his young, sunburned, weather-ridged face, with its smile and its strength, the worn service cap and uniform, all marked him to the crowds as the man they sought. On the shoulders of members of the New York Stock Exchange he was carried to the floor of the exchange and business was suspended. When he appeared in the gallery of the House of Representatives at Washington, the debate was stopped and the members turned to cheer him. A sergeant in rank, he sat at banquets as the guest of honor with the highest officials of the Army and Navy and the government on either side. Wherever he went, he heard the echo of the valuation which Marshal Falk and General Pershing placed upon his deeds. Many business propositions were made to him. Some were substantial and others strange, the whimsical offerings of enthused admirers. Among them were cool fortunes he could never earn at labor taking as a basis the money he was paid for three months on the farm in the summer before he went to france he would have had to work fifty years to earn the amount he was offered for a six weeks theatrical engagement for the rights to the story of his life a single newspaper was willing to give him the equivalent of thirty-three years he would have to live to be over three hundred years of age to earn at the old farm wage the sum motion picture companies offered as a guarantee 
He turned all down, and went back to the little worried mother who was waiting for him in a hut in the mountains, to the gazelle-like mountain girl whose blue eyes had haunted the shades of night and the shadows of trees, to the old seventy-five-acre farm that clings to one of the sloping sides of a sun-kissed valley in Tennessee. He refused to capitalize on his fame, his achievements that were crowded into a few months in the army of his country. There was one influence that was ever guiding him. The future had to square with the principles of thought and action he had laid down for himself, and that he had followed since he knelt, four years before, at the rough-boarded altar in the little church in the valley of the Three Forks of the Wolf, whose belfry had been calling, appealing to him since childhood. Admiral Albert Gleaves, who commanded the warship convoy for the troopships, himself a Tennessean, made a prediction which came true. The guns of Argonne, and the batteries of welcome of the East were not to be compared to those to be turned loose in York's home state. The people of Tennessee filled depots, streets, and tabernacles to welcome him. Gifts awaited him, which ranged from a four-hundred-acre farm raised by public subscription by the Rotary Clubs and newspapers, to blooded stock for it, and almost every form of household furnishings that could add to a man's comfort. It took a ware-room at Nashville and the courtesies of the barns of the State Fair Association to hold the gifts. He was made a colonel by the governor of Tennessee, and appointed a member of his staff. He was elected to honorary membership in many organizations. As far away as Spokane, the red-headed club thought him worthy of their membership, by virtue of the color of his hair, and in recognition of his services to this, our glorious country. The nations of Europe, for whom he had fought, had not forgotten, nor had they ceased to honor him. After he had returned to the mountains of Tennessee, another citation came from the French government, for a military award that had been made him, in a ceremony at the capital of Tennessee, the Italian government conferred upon him the Italian cross of war. The Valley of the Three Forks of the Wolf, where Alvin York was born and lives, which has been the home of his ancestors for more than a hundred years, is a level, fertile valley that is almost a rectangle in form. Three mountains rising on the north, south, and west enclose it, while to the east four mountains jumble together, forming a fourth side seems that each of these is striving for a place by the valley. It is down the passes of these mountains on the east that the three branches of the Wolf River run, and it is their meeting and commingling that gave the quaint name to the valley. The forks of the Wolf rush down the passes, but the river runs lazily through the valley. It flows beside a cornfield, then wanders over a meadow of clover or into a patch of sugar cane, turning the while from side to side as the varying mountain vistas come into view. At the far end, where it is pushed over the mill dam and out of the valley, the wolf roars protestingly, then rushes on to the Cumberland River, a silver line between the mountains. Pall Mall, the village, is coextensive with the Valley of the Three Forks of the Wolf. As a stranger first sees Pall Mall, it is but a half mile of the mountain roadway that runs from Jamestown, the county seat of Fentress County, to Birdstown, the county seat of Pickett. The roadway comes down from the top of the Knobs, a thousand feet above, and it comes over rocks of high and low degree, a jolting, impressive journey for its traveler. It reaches the foot of the mountain along one of the prongs of the wolf, crosses them at the base of the eastern mountains, and passes on to the northern side of the river. At the post office of Pall Mall, which is also the store of Pastor Pile, a frame building upon stilts to allow an unobstructed flow of the wolf when on a winter rampage, the road turns at right angles to the west. Through fields of corn it goes, across a stretch of red clover to the clump of forest trees which is the schoolhouse grounds, and in which nestles the little church that has played such a prominent part in the life of the village. 
then the road goes beside the graveyard and again through corn to the general store of john marion rains which with five houses in sight and one of these the york home marks the western confine of pall mall one can be in the center of pall mall and not know it for the residents live in farmhouses that dot the valley and in cabins on the mountainsides the little church which sits by the road with no homes near it is the geographical as well as the religious center of the community it is the heart of pall mall passing the rain store the roadway tumbles down to the york's big spring a brook in volume the stream flows clear and cool from a low rock-ribbed cave in the base of the mountain across the spring branch up the mountainside in a clump of honeysuckle and roses and apple trees is the home to which sergeant york returned it is a two-room cabin the boxing is of rough boards as are the unplaned narrow strips of batting covering the cracks there is a chimney at one end and in one room is a fireplace the kitchen is a lean-to and the only porch is on the rear the width of the kitchen dining room the porch is for service and work railed partly with a board for a shelf which holds the water bucket the tin wash basin and burdens brought in from the farm parts of the walls of the two rooms are papered with newspapers and catalogue pages the rough rafters run above the uncovered floor is of wide boards worn smooth in service chinked to keep out the blasts of winter the porch in the rear is on a level with the mountainside to care for the mountain slope a front stoop was built the sides of it are scantlings and the steps are narrow boards the house has been painted by poverty but the home is warmed and lit by a mountain mother's love the front stoop is a wooden ladder with flat steps but the entrance to the home is an arbor of honeysuckle and roses on summer nights the york boys sat on that stoop and sang their voices floated on the moonbeams out over the valley the little mother pottered about with ever a smile on her face for her boys they were happy it was from this home that alvin went to war and it was to it he returned visitors know and it is well for others to realize that pall mall and the valley of the three forks of the wolf are back among the rising ranges of the cumberland mountains forty-eight miles from the railroad alvin york came from a line of ancestors who were cane cutters and indian fighters the earliest ancestor of whom he has knowledge was a long hunter who with a rifle upon his shoulder strode into the valley of the wolf and homesteaded the river bottom lands here his people lived far from the travelled paths marooned in their mountain fastnesses they clung to the customs and traditions of the past their life was simple and their sports quaint they held shooting matches on the mountainside enjoyed log rollings and corn huskings strong in their loves and in their hates they feared god but feared no man the civil war swept over the valley and left splotches of blood friends of sergeant york knowing that the history of his people was rich in story and that the public was waiting wanting to know more of the man the german army could not make run nor make surrender and instead had to come to him urged that his story be told he had been mustered out of the army and come back to the valley wanting to pick up again the dropped thread of his former life he was striving earnestly and prayerfully to blot from recurrent memory that october morning scene on york's hill in france his friends and neighbors at pall mall waited eagerly for his return they wanted to hear from his own lips the story of his fight no man of the mountains was ever given the homecoming that was his it was made the reunion of the people with the neighbors the component parts of one great family when home again alvin wanted no especial deference shown him he wished to be again just one of them 
to swing himself upon the counter at the general store and talk with them as of old. He had much to tell from his experience, but always it was of other incidents than the one that made him famous. Months passed. He lived in that mountain cabin with his little mother, whose counsel had ever influenced him, and yet not once did he mention to her that he had a fight in the forest of Argonne. His consent was gained for the publication of the story of his people, but it was with the pronounced stipulation that it be told right. Weeks afterwards, for I had gone to live a while among his people, the two of us were sitting upon the rugged rock, facing to the cliff above the York Spring, talking about the fight in France. He told of it hesitatingly, modestly. Some of the parts was simply the confirmation of assembled data, much of it denial of published rumor and conjecture, before the story came out as a whole. I asked the meaning of his statement that he would not mind the publication if the story were done right. Well, he said with his mountain drawl, I don't want you bearing down too much on that killing part. Tell it without so much of that. A rock was picked up and hurled down the mountainside. I then understood why the little mother was just so waiting till Alvin gets ready to talk. I understood why the son did not wish to be the one to bring into his mother's mind the picture of that hour in France when men were falling before his gun. I saw the reason he had for always courteously avoiding talking of the scene with anyone. But, and he turned with that smile that wins him friends, I just can't help chuckling at that German major. I sure had him bluffed. According to the code of mountain conversation, there followed a silence. Another rock bounded off a sapling down the cliff. You should have seen the major, he resumed. Move down that hill whenever I pulled down on him with that old colt. Goose step it, I think they call it. He was so little, his back was so straight, and all huffed up over the way he had to mind me. I had watched the rocks as they went down the cliff, and it seemed nearly every one of them bounced off the same limb. I commented on the accuracy of his eye. Oh, I wasn't throwing at that sapling, but at that leaf. He straightened up and threw more carefully, and the leaf floated down to the waters of the York Spring. Down by the spring I met the little mother bringing in a tin bucket to the stone milk-house which nature had built. Her slender, drooping figure, capped by the sunbonnet she always wore, reached just to the shoulder of her son as he placed his arm protectingly about her. I asked if she were not proud of that boy of hers. Yes, she answered, with pride in every line of her sweet, though wrinkled face. I am proud of all of them, all of my eight boys. End of chapter. Recording by Brett Downey.